She said after the break-in, I had gone to Mass extra early that Sunday, and I had prayed for God to kill you because I knew I couldn't help you. Mental health and addiction are largely misunderstood. We often struggle in silence, but there is hope for a better life. I'm Trevor Steinhauser, and this is Stigmatized. What's up, everybody? Happy summer. I am super excited today, uh, not only about my guests, but about the topics we're going to discuss. A couple of my favorite things, addiction, head injuries. Uh, I really haven't gotten into head injuries uh, as much as I'd like to on this show, barely at all, actually. So uh, since that's a big part of my story, I'm excited to uh, have Jeff Gould here, uh, who is into a little bit of everything in recovery, intervention, blogging, published author. Thanks for being here, brother. Absolutely. Uh, delighted to be here on this fine Thursday morning. So let's just start with some some background so everybody can get a uh, little idea what you're all about. Hey, uh, my name is Jeff Gould. I live in Dallas, Texas. I am a certified intervening professional and also the founder and CEO of Labor of Love Intervention. I've lived here for about four years. I'm, I'm not a Texan um, by birth. I was actually born in Los Angeles and raised in Tucson, Arizona. And I lived there, oh gosh, from probably 1975, just until about four years ago. And so I started my I did a whole lot of drinking and there was a whole lot of addiction happening out there. Um, I found uh, the rooms of recovery, I guess you might say around 2002 and, uh, and have you know, maintained abstinence uh, since then and, and worked in the field of treatment for the bulk of those years. I would say about uh, 15, 16 years now I've worked in treatment. Um, my interests and some of the things, you know, I was a, a big music guy in the eighties and nineties and ran around with some different people and some rock and roll bands. And, um, really kind of that changed once I got into early recovery, I was never much of a sports guy. I wasn't a jock by any stretch of the imagination, uh, certainly not in my teenage years, but, um, when I got into, uh, into recovery, I, uh, I discovered I had this fantastic love of ice hockey, go Predators. I know I'm on a Nashville uh, podcast based podcast. And so, um, you know, a, a, a lot of things changed for me, not that not the least of them, which is in part, in part, what got me interested in, um, in post concussion syndrome, traumatic brain injury, things like that. So. Awesome. Well, let's talk a little bit about how things were you know, growing up, uh, pre-recovery you know there's there's so many different lenses i could tell that story through you know like i could tell that story through uh you know one example would be i'm seeing a nutritionist right now i think like many of us right covid was not good to the waistline and something about working from home for months on end you just kind of snack all day but uh you know we started talking and and um i was telling her uh, we don't we don't use this term anymore, but I was what they would call the classic latchkey kid, right? I was raised in Tucson, Arizona, uh, by a series of post-it notes that sat said, "Hey, there's hot dogs in the fridge, and there's this and that." And so, 
I grew up um, very kind of self-contained with kind of a pretty deep interior world, but but it was kind of one of those situations where it's like ice cream for breakfast and pizza for lunch and pancakes for dinner. And, you know, my sister and I raised ourselves and each other on the television. And, and, and that is no slam on my parents. It was just at that time, it was the product of being in a family, a divorced family, where the one parent was carrying the load. And in order to put us into private school and, and, and pay the mortgage on a nice house on the suburban side of town, my mom worked so much that we never really saw her, right? And so um, good, bad, or, or indifferent, that's just kind of the way it was growing up. And then, of course, I had, you know, uh, a pretty nasty concussion when I was about 11 years old in a BMX accident. And then two years later, uh, I, I sustained a massive, massive head injury and, and just a freak accident. And, uh, and that was really kind of when everything began to change for me, when that, you know, the, the, this rich interior world of childhood all of a sudden went really dark and, uh, and, and uh, got really scary and, and different night terrors and things like that, that, um, you know, basically my, my feelings and my outlook and my thought life changed dramatically really pretty yeah. quickly. So. Uh, were there changes after the first concussion or did it take that second one to? You know, it's some of those things are, are honestly very difficult to remember. You know, obviously I'm 47 now and so I'm going back um, decades and, and some of it, I have this exterior viewpoint. Like I, again, I looked, um, I look at some of those old family photo albums and certainly after that first concussion, I always appear to be squinting, right? Which to me would be indicative of, I began having problems with direct sunlight as it was too bright or things like that. Um, so I don't remember that quite as much, but I can tell you um, after the second concussion, there is not a single family photo stretching on for decades where I was ever smiling in that photo. And I always appeared to be squinting and had kind of a frown on my face, which was just kind of this exterior kind of reflection of like what was going on inside me at that, at that point I had ceased to be, you know, uh, had gone from being a happy kid to an extremely unhappy person and then an unhappy young adult, which is, which was punctuated by other things. I, I, I want to be clear on this. I think had I had no head injury whatsoever, I, I do feel I had a strong predisposition to, you know, drink and a strong predisposition perhaps to try drugs. And so I think one of the exacerbating factors probably was that head injury looking back with some kind of honesty and, and self No, that's, that's, uh good to know and good for people to understand that uh, because I talk about it too, that it's just a factor in a uh, right. snowball effect of a bunch of other factors, but um, head injury is uh, serious business. How old were you when you had those two in that two year span? I want to say I was 11 and I was the, the second one, I was 13 years old. And so it's funny how people remember things differently. The, the same, my same best friend, uh, you know, as a kid, he was at both events. We were doing some BMX stuff when I got the first one and the second one, it was actually at his house where uh, they had been doing some painting and um, I was hit in the, they had 
taking a closet door off the hinges, you know, when I was laying on the ground reading a comic book and, and that door was just kind of leaning against the wall there. It wasn't secured to anything and somebody had upset the door and it had kind of fallen down in this arc and I was, my face was at the end of that arc. So I think my friend screamed and he knew I was probably going to get hit and I turned around to see what he was yelling about. And uh, the corner of that falling door caught me right across the jawline. And I mean, it, it, uh, it did a number on my face. We, we actually have a difference uh, in opinion of, um, I remember, I don't remember how many teeth I lost in the event. He seems to think it's far fewer than I do because we've discussed it. What I do remember is uh, going to the dentist you know, all those nerves were damaged. And so maybe a month later, it just felt like I was being hit in the face with a baseball bat, just walking. And so I remember they, they're telling me like, you're going to get root canals all day long, one after the next, after the next, after the next, after the next. And I, I want to say, I actually went back for um, continuity's sake when I was writing the book, you know, there's this idea that if, if you're ever going to um, be on a New York Times bestseller list, um, there will be fact checkers that will check your work. And so to the best of my ability, I went back, I tried to find dental records, things like that. Like how many root canals were there? I remember there being a, somewhere around 11, 12 or 13. I think I took artistic liberty with the book and I just said uh, 13 in the original unedited version. And, and after that, I wasn't sure about that number. So I just put like a great many or something like that. I do know that my face was wired shut with a wire harness. A bunch of the teeth were kind of wired back into place and kind of, uh, you know, holding on to the existing teeth that I hadn't lost and uh, um, stitches inside and outside my mouth. And it really, I mean, it really, uh, you know, I had to have to some degree a little bit of, I guess what you'd call plastic surgery, a mix between oral and plastic surgery on my mouth because it had really done a ton of damage. And I mean, had just, had just knocked me absolutely senseless. And so those, uh, and then like many kids do, I started, you know, smoking pot of six months, eight months, nine months later, just kid stuff. And, and I remember quite clearly um, that all the other kids would be, eating Doritos and giggling and let's heat up some pizza and, and, you know, teenage kid stuff that happens when you smoke pot. And I remember going to a very different place that like my world got really, really dark. And um, I remember having this idea somehow that I was going to hell and I couldn't get the idea out of my head and, and, uh, and just uh, telling, trying to explain to people what was going on with my thoughts and how I couldn't control my thoughts. And, I was afraid I was going to be possessed by the devil. And, you know, we're just 13 year old kids. Everybody's like, man, what are you talking about? And I was like, I don't know what I'm talking about. It was just a, just a feeling I had and this kind of grave sense came over me and my, and then my thoughts and my, you know, just continued to change and continue to get worse and, and things like that. And again, looking back, I think, uh, the light was starting to hurt my eyes a good bit, and my thoughts were uh, really kind of scrambled and kind of sporadic. And um, and one of the neat things about writing the book is I've had people reach out to me from all over the country with undiagnosed brain injury. You know, the most recent one I think was a guy from Long Beach, and he said, "I was always that quiet, reserved kid, and then I hit my head." And then two weeks later, I'm like the kid doing like a backflip off the apartment roof into the pool 
breaking my ankle on the edge of the pool. I, I, I think you know that type, the, sure. the risk taker, the wild guy, the, the guy that does just stuff on impulse and doesn't think that through. And and um, I definitely identify with that sort of uh, thought pattern. And so. not only is it hard enough to have the, all, you know, the, the damage to your face, but and have a huge concussion, you know, back to back. But at that age, when your hormones are, you're, you're just forming as a child and you've already got a bunch of stuff going through your head for, for that to happen. Uh, that's pretty profound because it, you know, it, it took you down a, like you said, you're hanging out with a bunch of quote unquote normal kids and you have a, an accident like that, that, that changes your, your brain chemistry. So I'm curious though, because I, I went through multiple head injuries as well. And I had, you mentioned night terrors. What did that look like for you? Cause, cause I had the same thing, you know, um, and I, and, and to be fair, um, much of that has, uh, continued, um, to this debt. Well, you know, the elephant in the room, sometimes I guess, you know, almost becomes your pet. And so, but I remember from an early, early age, just waking up, uh, with things that terrified me. And again, this, um, this kind of recurring thought, I used to have this recurring dream where I was in this underground parking garage and that there was this giant kind of dirt hole in the ground. And it was, it, it felt like it was pulling me in and, and over and over, I felt like I was getting pulled into this hole. And I knew if I went into that hole one, I was never coming back. And I knew exactly where that went, that that went straight to hell, you know, in my mind. And I had had this, uh, you know, I used to have this, a amusement park ride where I was on some kind of roller coaster, but instead of being surrounded by, you know, flags and things, it was barbed wire and chains and, 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 you know, going through, you know, corrugated tin sheds with broken furniture and, and, and broken things and, you know, and skeletons sitting in chairs, just, just really peculiar kind of bizarre stuff. And um, one of the things I, I made mention of this in the book, one of the things we learn in recovery is um, is how powerful identification is. I mean, how many times have we heard somebody go into the rooms of an AA or an NA or something like that, and they say, man, for the first time, I heard somebody telling my story. And so believe it or not, I had not assembled, what we're talking about, right? I had basically over the, you know, I you stay you stay sober, clean, whatever, long enough, you're going to start to assemble some pieces, especially if you've had some good clinicians involved in your life. And, you know, you've done some deep interior work, a lot of self-reflection and things like that. And so I had done that work, but there was always this missing puzzle piece for me. I mean, I knew, um, you know, I knew my parents' parenting style had impacted my ability to have relationships, what we, what we would call an attachment style. I knew that for a fact. I knew this car accident I had had at 19, I had had a hand cut off and sewed back on in a car accident. They told me two months later, you know, you have major PTSD. I would get in a vehicle for the next year or two and, and basically just start, you know, just like scream or something. And the driver would always be like, hey, could you please kind of not do that? That's very, you know, it's, you're not helping me drive here. And so, um, so I had looked at all these things and it really wasn't until, well, I can tell you there were two key events that were the inspiration to 
think like, God, I got to get this on paper. Like there's a, there's a story here that needs to be told. Um, yeah. And, and so. thankfully you did it. And we're, so we're, we, we keep mentioning the book. Jeff wrote a book called a life concussed, which is basically a memoir, but, uh, talking about, uh, how the, the concussions have weaved into that story. So we'll, we'll put a link to that on the episode notes when, uh, when this releases and, uh, Great read. The book is beautifully written, and especially, you know, some of these terrible events that have happened in your life. It just gives it's such an expression the way it's written to like you were there, especially the car accident, man. That's right when you brought that up. It's that's uh, in that story is super intense. But uh, did you talk to professionals in the? neurologists and things like that when you were prepping this thing? Oh, I absolutely did. And again, I wanted to make sure, and I've continued to do um, research into basically restorative paths to health for traumatic brain injury. I've gotten involved in several communities. And so I would say post-concussive syndrome which we generally associate with sports. Sometimes we associate it with combat. Um, post-concussive syndrome and traumatic brain injury, um, you know, I think a post-concussive syndrome is a traumatic brain injury, but sometimes when you talk about traumatic brain injury, I mean, this, this spectrum goes as far as you can go in, in terms of disability and people that have lost the powers of speech. They've lost their motor functions. I mean, there was one woman who, um, I was in a group where people share about the, the lives of their children who are suffering from TBI. And, and some of those cases were extremely dark. And, you know, at, at some point you run into a case where it's like, I don't have a lot of advice to give you. There's one woman who's, I believe her son had accidentally shot himself in the head and they had taken out about 40% of his brain matter. And he would, um, he would scream all day long and he uh, would sexually pleasure himself. I'll say it that way that, and this would happen all day long, almost autonomically, like with or without his permission, that's who he'd become. And, and I, you know, this, this woman's reaching out to you for advice. Like, so, uh, what should I do about a situation like that? You know, what do you think will help? And, and that is so far out of, um, I mean, that's so far out of any, any advice I could give. And I think if a medical professional were telling the truth, they would be a little short of advice as well, you know? So, so we're talking about this wide, wide spectrum of, uh, of symptomology, this wide, wide spectrum of disability, um, the beautiful thing with this book is, is like you said, you've been reached, you know, people have been reaching out to you all over the place. It's building a community. It's giving people a voice who never really maybe have thought that their brain injury, uh, mattered or that it played a role in their life or, or anything like that. But back to the stats, the vast majority of head injuries are just freak accidents. Are they not? I mean, it, it people is like you said, people associate it with combat, people associate it with sports, but you know, I've had m more than I can count on both hands and none of them were in sports. It was just freak accidents of being a, a rough housing child. I, you know, I'm inclined to agree. And I would think that's most people's experience. 
And then obviously, if you place yourself in contact sports, you're, you're basically just laying the groundwork for that for that to be a high probability of something that's going to happen in your life at some point. And again, you know, one of the funny things, and, and, and they know this, especially in treating sports-related concussion, the brain doesn't respond like any other muscle. If you tear a ligament or you, you pull a groin muscle, you, you know, depending on the severity, they can give you a timeline right off the bat. Oh, you're going to be out three to six weeks. You're going to be out six to eight weeks. You're going to be out eight to 12 weeks because they have experientially, you know, a whole host of, of other um, recoveries to compare it to with which to draw a timeline from. But the brain is so wildly unpredictable that you may experience concussion, post-concussive symptoms for two days and never have any difficulty with it all. Or you may experience it for a year and then it'll go away and come back three weeks later. So it's wildly wildly unpredictable just right? like addiction is so i've had a i've got a good right. friend who we debate about this whole concussion thing i don't know if he didn't believe my story or or what but you know um he said you know i have people who play sports you know I, i've i played three i was a three sport athlete i got concussed more times than i know but it didn't you know i'm fine i think it just it's every person is different you know it can it can take one concussion that sets you off and affects your life forever, or you can have multiple. And like you said, after a couple of weeks, it goes away and it's fine. It's same with addiction. It, it's, you know, it's, uh, it all, every person's biology is different. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, so backtrack a little bit. Uh, when did you get, introduced to pain pills at all when you were having that dental work done as a kid you know i gotta believe it was but i don't remember that as being like the the turning point um my first um you know my first experience that i remember really being drawn to something it was alcohol and i think i had had played hooky from i want to say it was fourth or fifth grade and gotten into the the liquor cabinet there and had, uh, I think I'd had maybe four or five glasses of wine. And I remember feeling kind of wobbly and kind of interesting and kind of different. And so um, for the longest time, I sort of draw um, into chemical dependency, if you will, had been very much through um, alcohol would was the first thing that would prove to be problematic. So I don't re really remember pain pills being much of a factor in that first thing. Honestly, I don't really remember them being much of a factor after the car accident. I know I was on them, but uh, by that point, you know, there was, there was already substances that were, that were in place that I was incredibly drawn to. And, and that would have been more on the cocaine side of things and the, you know, the other side of things. So. Was your, did did you as this kind of went on and you were drawn to things and you were having all these uh, emotional um, episodes? Would you say that you had an addiction looming before the car accident, before nineteen? Oh yeah, absolutely. So one of the things I work with a lot of um, families uh, with loved ones who suffer addiction or alcoholism. And I think to me, 
what really punctuates addiction or alcoholism. And, and this is the example I give. So, you know, I, I'm getting to that fun age at 47, pushing 50, where you, you got to start, you know, getting things looked at, things like colonoscopy, different things like that, right? And, and so I think we all know there may be some sick listener out there that really enjoys that type of thing. But I think for the bulk of us, the vocal majority, there's a, you walk into the doctor's office and you got this feeling just hanging all over you. You know why you're there and they know why you're there. And the doctor comes in and says, hey, put this gown on and meet me in this room. I'll be back in 15 minutes. I'm going to go hook up the camera and then we'll, we're going to get down to it. And you, you, you kind of get this feeling like, I mean, it's a feeling like all of a sudden everybody's reading your mail, you know. And so when I think of the internal condition, um, which which most people would just call self-centered fear, if you're familiar with the um, if you're familiar with a lot of the published materials about untreated addiction, untreated alcoholism, there's a certain feeling that that goes hand in hand with being untreated. And I would describe it very much like that. And so I remember from a pretty young age, I begin to have that feeling as much as walking into high school as walking into a Christmas party as starting a new, you know, the new guy on the job or whatever. There was just this deep um, internal feeling I couldn't shake like everybody was reading my mail, like I was naked from the waist down, like I was like that doctor's office feeling was always with me and it only yielded to perhaps two or three drinks or some other illicit substance, right? And so that's the internal feeling I think that goes along with addiction or with, with uh, untreated alcoholism. So in addition to that, what we had talked about was I was also having uh, an incredibly complex problem with an extremely dark pathology, with night terrors, with certain um, visions, with certain pictures in my head of things I had never seen before, but that I didn't want to see that were of uh, an extremely violent nature. I began to lose impulse control. And, 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 and back then, and you know this too, you know, when you're 13 or 14 or 15 years old, live in life, you know, we live life at point blank, like we just do what's in front of us. And so you don't necessarily have anything to compare that to that warrants really telling someone really reaching out for help and telling them what's really going on inside you. Again, everything I just shared about is through the rearview mirror of experience where I can tell you my teenage years I don't think I felt like other kids felt, like not at all. There was I was stricken with self-centered fear and at the same time had this dark pathology that was spinning out from a head injury. And so, of course, right, of course I was drawn to punk rock. Of course I was drawn to the streets. Of course I was drawn to other, you know, it was no mistake or no accident that I didn't know then 16 years later I was to end up homeless in about as bad a condition as you can be in the United States of America. Um, I'm sure there's other countries where where the plight of the people is probably far worse than we have it here. But uh, but I had really gone to some lows in Skid Row, Los Angeles, and up around Van Buren Street in Phoenix, which if you've never been there, it's like, uh, keep driving if you've, ne- if, you've, if you've never been there. So, um, you know, it was it was no accident that I found myself there based on my thinking and my feelings, which were my platform. That was my launch pad to launch into life and try and make something out of life and be successful with right. it. So. Um, and, and I think aside from self-centered fear and a lot of the, the things that you just talked about, 
the 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 core idea is anxiety. And when you walk in, like when you say you walk into the room and feel like everybody's looking at you naked. Uh, I mean, and that that's something that, you know, kids that are coming into adolescence, that's, that's a natural, it's a natural thing, but what keeps them from gravitating towards the bad stuff? I, I was on a panel yesterday and, and uh, a woman was is a counselor in a school and she said, you know, how do I, how do I get through to teenagers that this is not the road you want to, not the road you want to take? I mean, how do I get them to, you know, to just be happy with themselves? Wanted to get your opinion. And I do have a strong one and it's kind of, uh, fluid and hard to pin down, but I worked in adolescent treatment for 10 years. And when I say, actually, I think I exaggerated, there's more like nine years, but I worked in adolescent treatment for a long, long time in a long-term um, setting that was kind of a high-end program in the sense that most of the 55 kids at any given time were from upper middle class families. We had some Beverly Hills families, some Bel Air, uh, a couple of young people from the nice side of Manhattan, a lot of, lot of young, young, young adults from Houston and different places. And, and I'm a kind of a keen observer of human behavior. I just kind of like to um, reflect and think about things. And one of the things I noticed with teenagers, and I, I wrote a blog on this, it was on Addiction Pro uh, a number of years ago. But one of the things I noticed about these teenagers, and I get it because I was the same way, there was so little that had any value to them in the sense that um, things like things like art, things like literature, things like world history, um, you know, things that would mean a great deal. Well, I'll just give you an example rather than talking in theory. I remember there was a, a medicine man, um, Native American, who had come to share with this group of boys. And so he had this, um, what we call a medicine kit. There was an eagle feather and, and just some different things that were very special, some tobacco pouches, some different things that were very special to him as a medicine man that had centuries of history. And so I'm sitting here in my chair and I find this utterly fascinating, the things he's talking about and what his, his great-grandparents knew and what their great-grandparents knew. And I start watching these kids and there was just this blank and dull stare that I saw so often on their faces. And, you know, I remember going to um, share my story with sometimes. And if you talk about anything of a sexual nature or extreme violence, there was this moment where you could kind of see their eyes sparkle, like something would, something would spur them back awake and, and pull them back into the room. But there was almost like a lack of reverence for world history, for art, for literature, for things that, that held value to other people. And so I guess in short, um, you know, we are living very much in uh, the two-parent working household where much like myself, um, children by and large are raising themselves, they're raising each other, except now they're doing it with easy internet access and they have, I don't know that I'm, pro-censorship, but I do know that there's things we can bring into our soul 
that aren't necessarily good for us. And if you're too young to know that lesson, you may do it on a regular basis. As an example, I was two months into recovery. This had to go, go going back to 2002. And I was kind of friends with the, uh, the GM that, that, that was at this facility I was kind of living at. And I had kind of earned my stripes. And they let me go out on my own and watch groceries and stuff. But one day I borrowed, his name was Butch. I borrowed his laptop. And this was when, um, I don't know why I'm bringing this up. This was when that first journalist had been beheaded in, in Iraq. And this is going back a long time ago. And just out of curiosity, I remember pulling that up on YouTube and watching it. And it was like, and then for the next five days, I really wished I hadn't. It was like, wow, that was horrific. If I could undo that. And yet we have these adolescents that are growing up 9, 10, 11, 12 years old that, uh, you know, pornography and extreme violence are probably just a staple of their life. It's They send each other videos and links and Snapchat and, hey, check this stuff out. And, and so um, part of this blog I had written was, um, I believe the shooting, the mass shooting epidemic, and I believe the opioid epidemic are systemic and they're two different symptoms of the same problem that for by and large, we've raised, you know, we're raising adolescents in a culture where things like compassion, things like commitment, things like um, history and, and, and things like that mean very, very little, right? Where there's a sensory overload of, 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 of data and information and music and video games available. And I think what happens is I think it numbs the spirit. I think it dulls the mind. And by 16, 17 year old, you, you know, are working with a, doing an intervention on a family right now up here in Plano. And I'm talking to this kid. Uh, I've met with him a number of times. And the only thing he can really verbalize well is, uh, I just want to die. I, I don't know. I'm, I smoke pot every day. And when I smoke it, I want to die. When I don't smoke it, I want to die. And I think um, his life lacks meaning and value. I, I, I believe we all, human beings need a purpose um, to be here. And when we've been deprived of that purpose, uh, it does terrible things to the character it does terrible things to human development um, I, I share this one story and then you know we'll get back to it i was working with a young adult uh this would have been about eight years ago he he and his cousins and they had all each inherited 12 oil wells and lived off the um interest i guess you would say that 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 from the finances those would generate and as soon as they all became of age but what had happened to all these kids is one had committed suicide, one was in a psychiatric ward, one was in long-term treatment. And these young, these, this family of kids had come from privilege and they'd come from opportunity, if nothing else. So I'm talking to this guy one day and uh, I asked him, he didn't know where I was going. I knew exactly where I'm going. I, I asked him, um, we'll just say his name was Austin. I said, hey, Austin, have you ever, uh, you ever do any dishes? And he looks at me like I'm a complete idiot. No, I haven't done any dishes. We had a we had a housekeeper to do the dishes when I grew up. I've never washed a dish in my life. And I said, huh, very interesting. And I asked him, you ever fold any laundry in his life? And again, he looks at me like I'm stupid. No, we had a nanny that folded laundry, Jeff. And um, you know, I keep this line of questioning going. You ever change a flat tire? Ever get out the little tire iron there? And he said, no, we had a driver and we had mechanics that did that stuff. And I said, oh, okay. And 
ask them, hey, how about doing homework? You ever sit down and crack a book and really wrestle with homework for four or five, six hours? And he said, no, man, I paid some other sucker in class to do that for me. I don't do homework. I pay others to do it for me. And then I asked him the last and final question. I said, have you ever done anything at all? <laughs> anything. And, uh, and he couldn't answer that question. And I said, look, some of your brothers and sisters are dead. Some of them are in an insane asylum. You need to find a path that you can put your elbow grease into. And it's gotta be something that comes from your heart and your inspiration, your own spiritual blueprint. Because as long as you keep relying on people to take care of you and, and make sure you're comfortable, you seem to be anything but comfortable, right? And, and I think part of the human experience has to do with resilience and has to do with those less, you know, it's life is a series of small lessons. like changing a tire and studying your hardest, but not quite studying quite hard enough to get the grade you wanted and, and those disappointments that, that we grow and learn from. And I think um, it's kind of a broad brushstroke to paint with, but I think by and large, we've robbed young people of the opportunity of both life and building resilience to life. Um, and that looks like a lot of different things. I, I mean, obviously, Culturally, the United States is an incredibly diverse place, but I, I believe younger people have a harder time than ever currently kind of finding a path that they can that they can kind of fit and get in a groove with. So there's no doubt about it. And and I can't imagine I talk about this often, how hard it is to grow up today with social media and instantaneous feedback on whatever you're involved with whether that's positive, whether it's negative. Um, but I often think I, I've, I've thought about speaking in front of my high school and I've been asked to. And I think the thing that, you know, obviously there's some anxiety with that, uh, even though I'm comfortable talking to pretty much anybody, but I, I picture myself coming out as a 42-year-old in recovery. And what if the 18-year-old Trevor was sitting in the audience how would I be able to, or 16-year-old, however old, capture the interest and the attention of someone that age when I know two parts? I think what I would have been thinking if a 42-year-old came out to talk about uh, mental health or behavioral health or addiction, would I have been thinking, when's this dude going to shut up because I got a bag of weed burning a hole in my pocket? So it's hard to figure out how to capture the minds of, of these young people when, when they are, you know, I mean, what you said is spot on. Uh, they're kind of lost and, and they have access to some really bad stuff uh, at a moment's notice. Any thought, have you, have you spoken to schools? You know, I've spoken to my high school twice, and, and I think we know, and to your point, I think the scared straight approach is probably um, the least effective approach we can ever give someone. But I think, you know, maybe pulling somebody with a vision of what life could be like, it was this, the same young adult I was just talking about, he had to go to a psychiatric hospital for a month, and I drove him there. And, and one of the things I told him, because um, again, I think we had both kind of spotted his life didn't have much meaning or value. And I said, every day I want you to um, wake up and 
and and think about something you're drawn to. Maybe it's wind sailing. And I said, I, I really want you to work with that vision and, and just see the salt water from the ocean spraying you in the face and you're struggling to get your footing on the board. And then you catch that wind and you're just you're just going. And then I said, the next day, I want you to work with that vision and then add a new vision. See yourself uh, maybe you've always wanted to write a book or write poetry, and I just want you to visualize yourself doing that, sitting down with a quiet space, and you're you're feeling inspired, and you got some color and creativity, and and we went on and on. And the next day, you know, think about maybe like building a motorcycle or something like that, and 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 keep adding to those two other visions and three other visions and four other visions. And when you come back, let's talk. And now let's figure out some actions you can take of how do these these dreams and these visions about real life, how can I work to making those things a reality for me? And I guess that's where the patience comes in because you got to start where you're from, which is, well, you're going to have to get a job at Red Lobster and start saving a little money. And then maybe one day you can get a a sailboard or a surfboard or something like that. Um, But And he told me that message had value to him. He said, you know, I've been seeing therapists since I was 11 years old and nobody's ever told me anything that closely resembled like that. And I was like, well, one, this isn't therapy. This is just talking about being a human being and human beings have to have dreams. Otherwise, what are we doing here? You know, and and that really seemed like it made sense to him. So, yeah. And, And I mean, it comes also comes down to hard work. And I've also talked about this. I mean, I was not anywhere in the stratosphere of a Bel Air or a, you know, Manhattan, but I came from a family that had money. I never had to work in high school, never had to work in college. And that was a devastating, looking back, it was a horrible decision. Obviously, my parents were, you know, we want to give my kids a better life than we had and those kind of things. But that did nothing but hurt me. And it's still to this day. I mean, it's, it's one of those long lasting uh, things that uh, affected my work ethic and things like that. So I can see it being a challenge working with uh, children of means, especially today, who don't have to do diddly. And then they also have this, uh, all the, the, the social media that can take them anywhere they want to go in a moment, in, in a moment. So I can see that being uh, challenging because it, it definitely affected me because not because then you also uh, couple in the fact that when you start using heavy drugs and for me, I was smoking marijuana almost daily at 18, my brain got stuck there. So even nice. though I got sober at 37, I was an 18 year old kid when I start, you know, when my recovery started. So you couple that in with no work ethic and not having any responsibilities whatsoever. And the chances of it turning out in a positive light are pretty slim. Right. This is kind of funny to me. It's interesting that we're talking about adolescence, but we, you know, part of American history is having these longstanding institutions in place for so long that we don't stop to question them. But one of the things we know about teenagers intuitively is the empathic brain, you know, the, the, the prefrontal cortex and the empathic brain, those are things that don't finish developing until 23, 24 years old. And so um, basically, if you 
you know, spent time around children, sometimes they'll like, uh, you know, maybe kick an animal or, or do something like that. And an adult has to step in and correct them. Like, no, no, no. Like that's, that's not what we do. And they're like, Oh, I didn't know. And they literally didn't know. And so we have these American institutions called high schools where we take 2,500 people from a, you know, a 25 square block radius that are all, you know, borderline sociopath. They don't have an empathic brain. And we push them together in this crowded kind of space and, uh, and expect them to do well, right? And, and one of the things we're starting to see with alternative high schools and a smaller classroom setting is people actually thrive much better in a smaller setting because the anxiety, the social pressures, um, and, and bullying is stemming from that place, you know, to me, and again, I had a tough time in high school. I had gone off the rails in junior high. This is 1985 or 86 and cut my hair in a mohawk and, uh, and went into high school dressed in that fashion. And immediately I was a target. And so, you know, fast forward 30 years where we're talking about bullying, we're talking about combine, we're talking about people that say, I don't understand how this can happen. And I'm thinking, I understand easily how it can happen. Um, we, you know, the, the social structures we put into place in which people find adulthood are kind of frightening places to be, you know, for a lot of people that aren't maybe suited to that and that have uh, social anxieties and, and, and maybe don't have the money to dress right and to look right. And of course, of course, there's other people that thrive in it, that get into high school football and sports and academics and get into band after school and go on to SMU or go on to NYU or they go wherever they go. Of, of course, that's true, that there's people that, that love that experience and do well with it. But I think there's an equal number of people that really struggle with it, you know, and they're surrounded by people um, that don't have an empathic brain. So, right. Well, and we spent a little time talking about adolescence and I enjoy it because it's extremely important because these are the folks that are, that are coming along and, and we got to teach. And like, I, th I think you said before, I mean, th this is about being a human, a good human being and having empathy and you know, love for your fellow man and, and all that kind of stuff. So it, it is, uh, it is extremely important. So I, I like the uh, thank you for the examples of working with those kids because it it uh, it it sheds light for some people. Uh, let's talk about your intervention experience and the and the the, the company that you started and the work that you do there. Uh, absolutely. So I um, I've been trained by. Um, you know, there was a number of television personalities, um, Ken Seeley being one, Brad Lamb being another one. He was on Oprah and Dr. Phil quite a bit. And then, of course, Ken Seeley was, had the A&E show. And I had been through, you know, they do host these weekend trainings. But I, I really think the real merit and value, um, a friend of mine, Kurt, out in Torrance, California, had uh, offered to introduce me to a friend named Ed Storty, who to me in my estimation was really kind of the godfather of intervention. It would, it would be the therapeutic equivalent of somebody being like, Hey, I have this friend, Sigmund Freud, you should come out to Torrance to meet him. And I'm like, Sigmund who? Sure. You know, I'm up for a long drive. And so, um, so Ed really gave me some key components about intervening successfully. Some of it was common sense stuff, but if you didn't 
have that information, uh, you wouldn't necessarily, that wouldn't necessarily be your go-to. And so um, for a long time, it was kind of my second job. I would take anywhere between, I don't know, eight and 13 intervention cases a year. Um, but now it's what I'm doing primarily to make a living. I have a wonderful team. Uh, the old CEO of the Burning Tree Program is my director of family services. Um, you know, sometimes the loved ones have had equally, if not more, difficult time with the addiction um, piece, even though, because again, they haven't had the medicine to treat it. It's not like they're out ripping and running three or four times a week, um, at least getting some relief from that, you know, neurotic state that's been going on in, in their household for, you know, years or in their life for years. And so we do a lot of, of family-focused education. We do a lot of family trauma work. Um, I'm the kind of founder, and I'm, I'm the one that actually gets them into the hospitals and gets them onto the treatment ranches and works with the family on the front end. And then we, you know, the, the, the message is, is this is the art of pulling a yes out of a no. And if you're calling me for an intervention, you've already been told no, and you're kind of stuck, right? Your, your loved one is kind of taking you hostage and told you this is how it's going to be from here on out. Out. And so I help them see some different options and give them some education that to me is as plain as the nose on my face. But to them, you know, people have a right not to be abused by somebody else's bad behavior. And people have a right to, you know, I was talking to a mom recently whose son texts her, calls her, curses her out, calls her every name in the book. And I told her, hey, you have the right not to be abused. And if you're having that kind of a day, bl block him on your phone. You can always unblock him later when he's being reasonable. And to her, that was like very new information, right? Like I have a right to not have yeah. to settle. And I said, of course. And here's the thing, right? You wouldn't let anybody else in the world treat you that way. So why would your son be different? That's where it gets kind of hinky, right? Sometimes this uh, this term, which I'm, I'm not crazy about this term, and I'm not going to get into why unless you really want to know. This term enabling, I find, can be very shaming and very damning. But if there is a definition to that term, I think enabling is really excusing inexcusable behavior. And it's so it's teaching people how to not give them a pass over and over, not to get pulled into somebody else's narrative and get pulled into somebody else's sense of control over the family and, and know where to put those boundaries, which is, and you know, the, the thing that finally broke me um, and helped me get well was, oh, it would have been almost 18 years ago now. My mom had told me and she had gotten me out of jail and rescued me from the streets and these things over and over and over. And she finally said, if, if dying is something you got to do, you got to do it somewhere else because everything I've done to help you has only really seemed to hurt you. And there's nothing I can do that's going to solve your problem. And what I do know is this, I can't try anymore. And I mean, this is a pretty heavy story, but she told me when I was 10 years sober, she said there was a break-in um, and it was me that had done it. She said after the break-in, I had gone to mass extra early that Sunday and I had, uh, I had prayed for God to kill you because I knew I couldn't help you. And I knew I had to stop trying. And so it was interesting that when she delivered and drew that final line in the sand and I knew she had meant it, I mean, I only lasted, boy, another three weeks maybe. And I've been, and so the, the, the point being, and I, I bring this up with families sometimes, 
when my loved one abruptly changed her behavior and trajectory, my trajectory had no choice but to accommodate that and change along with it. And so it's trying to teach people the principles of like, when you change, they're going to have to change because they've been relying on you to maintain your position to keep, that's been the gasoline that's kept this alcoholic or addictive engine running all this time. No, there's notable exceptions, of course, where people are pretty self-contained. And obviously, some of the people I've intervened on have made plenty of money, pretty self-contained, done very well for themselves. And the quote-unquote enabling piece would not be nearly as clear in that case. And I've learned to kind of, I've learned to be successful with those two. It's different strategies that you got to use in a case like that. But I've learned to be successful in those cases as well. Yeah, this is such good work. And this is so much more than getting a loved one help because if the family doesn't do the work while the loved one is gone, if they choose to go, chances of success are, you know, it's, it's hit or miss because the family has to learn those. Like you, you made a pretty basic statement to that one mother and it was such a profound thing for her. If you can't assume that they know these things that, Hey, you're allowed to, block your son or hang up or change the locks or whatever it is. The family has got to do their own work, even though one person could have caused all this distress and wreckage. If it's going to work, you know, this is a family deal. So the the fact that you, you incorporate that successfully into it and it's not just getting Johnny, you know, in a room and then getting him off to a treatment center. Right. Yeah. Um, well, what else do, what, what do you want to leave us with? We got, we got some time. Anything else you want to cover? Undiagnosed head injury can be such a huge source of trouble. And oftentimes, even with medical professionals and MDs, it can really go undetected and cause a huge series of problems later. And so those are, those are things, um, if, if you have a loved one that's in contact sports or somebody that's hit their head, or anytime you see an abrupt behavior change in, in your loved one's life, that's something you want to dig into a little bit more. Even if they say they're fine, which they may, chances are they may not be fine at all, right? And, and so you're laying the groundwork for a ton, a ton of problems. Um, there's lots of pharmacological and medical interventions that can get things back on track. And then, you know, we've never been in, um, I will say this in terms of intervention, one of when people start reaching out for help, right? Their their daughter, or their son, or their husband or wife has come off the rails. One of the things that happens is they start reaching out. By the time somebody's ready to reach out and talk, now they're reaching out in 10 different directions. And their grandfather says he just needs to find Jesus Christ. And their grandmother says, Set send him to Salvation Army. Friend at work says, I heard they need to hear hit rock bottom. And they Google some resources and somebody says, Oh, all you need is a bio or a neurofeedback. And so suddenly you're being given 10 different messages. I would say um, get a hold of anytime you call a treatment, if that's your first, you know, if that's your first stop, treatment by its nature, oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes is going to see if that particular case fits your profile. So they have a motive. They're trying to make the box fit. But I would say um, work with an accredited individual who's not associated with a facility because you have to find someone singular that you can trust 
that's going to walk you through that process. And you're going to have to trust them and sort of block out some of these other mixed messages you're getting because your loved one's life depends upon you being able to put together a treatment plan and follow that trajectory, right? And that is so, so important. I think, you know, addiction comes up and people jump on Google and they're trying to do their own research. But, you know, there's different ideas competing. There's different theories um, there's some good players in the field and there's some bad players in the field. And so they'll start creating a plan that's based on something they've read rather than based on the expertise of an individual that works in the field. And so people just need somebody they can trust. And this is how, you know, uh, one of the color commentators for the Detroit Red Wings, he was on a podcast and they were expecting him to talk hockey. And really abruptly, he said, hey, have you guys ever heard of this, th this thing called the Florida Shuffle? And they said they had not. And he kind of hijacked this podcast and he said, well, I want to talk about it because my son's dead because of it. And this was that classic case of a father that sort of Googled his way through his own treatment trajectory and it cost his loved one their life. Um, so find somebody you can trust. Uh, you know, a therapist that addiction has been their wheelhouse for 10, 15, 20 years and open that up and have that conversation. So, so important. So if I, if I leave you with nothing else, I hope to leave you with that. Oh, that's, that's great. Okay. So a life concussed, everybody check it out. Again, we'll put the information up there, but Jeff, uh, thanks for taking some time. Truly appreciate it. It's an amazing story. The book's amazing. And uh, I wish you all the best in the future, man. Oh, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate you. Thanks for listening. I want to thank everyone that makes this show possible. Production by Gwen Sound, artwork by Neltner Smallbatch, and photography by John Willis and Lindsay Steinhauser. Please subscribe, rate, and write a review. Visit our website for more information at stigmatizedpodcast.com.